Hello and welcome to The Hive Podcast, the series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology and with the living world. Join me, Natalie Nahai, and some wonderful guests as we explore how we might reimagine humanity in the face of accelerating technological advancement, ecological disruption and systemic change. For more information on today's episode and guest, please visit natalinahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And for additional books and resources, check out natalinahai.com forward slash resources. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. In today's conversation, I speak with Camilla Moreno, an environmental researcher, author and activist, who has worked extensively on land reform, deforestation, GMOs, agribusiness and biodiversity issues. A leading climate policy expert and critical voice on neoliberal climate policies and green capitalism, Camilla's main area of study has been the interface between reasoning on climate change and the greening of capitalism. A researcher at the Federal Rural University of Rio de Janeiro, Camilla has been following the climate negotiations since 2008, and in 2016, she authored a book titled Carbon Metrics and the New Colonial, exploring these themes and more. The former coordinator of the Heinrich Böll Foundation in the Brazil office, Camilla has been accompanying the United Nations Convention on Biological Diversity since 2006 and the Climate Convention since 2008. She is a working group member of Political Ecology of the Latin American Council of Social Sciences and the International Council of Red for a Latin America Transgenic Free, the RALLT, and she served with the organizations Terra de Direitos, Lands Rights, and Amigos de Terra, Earth's Friends, as a researcher and activist. Camila, I'm very, very excited for this conversation today. How are you where you are now in Brazil? Yes, good morning. I am in Rio de Janeiro, and here it's seven o'clock in the morning on Saturday. <laughs> Bright and early. (laughs) Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show, especially on your weekend. I'm really looking forward to this. And uh, I'd love to start with the question that I always start these shows with, which is, what do you think is going on in the global human psyche at this moment? Well, the psychosphere, it's quite uh, charged, I think. And uh, we are in the middle of a a Mercury retrograde, which is nothing big because it happens uh, at least three times every year. But um, I think that the fast pace, uh, uh, at least I'm feeling, you know, uh, it's very, very hard to keep track of what's going on in the world. There's so many changes and so many levels. And even I am a very analog person and I take notes, uh, daily notes, to make sense and try to keep my critical thinking, you know, anchored in a, in a core road and not be distracted by all the peripheral noise that the, the whole uh, media complex, you know, bombard us every day. I think we are currently, this is my personal feeling, you know, this is the experience of the Great Reset. Uh, it's not as some people imagine, you know, this big um, catalytic galvanizing event that will happen with a big announcement. No, it's this um, uh, non-human acceleration uh, of all the trends and, and the important big tectonic moves, I would say, that are cementing 
this new phase, this new jump. Uh, of course, there will be some pause in a little while. This is due to, I don't know, astral climate, but also to the, the very calendar of uh, negotiations, agreements, and uh, public policy and lawmaking, you know, turning into law. Uh, but I think that by the end of the next year, you know, and I'm saying this because I'm very based on what the uh, United Nations formal calendar uh, is uh, looking towards, we will have a very different and changed uh, uh, landscape. And, and this is what I'm scared about, but also uh, in this uh, feeling, this urge that we uh, should be discussing uh, much more openly uh, what is this future and how we are not participating and how democracy is out of this 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 big game you know mm. well let's start there then um when you're thinking about the landscape in a year's time of how things will look feel how the systems will have changed maybe some of the the legal frameworks that will be in place or will be altered what are the key things that come to your mind what are the key things that you're imagining we'll see in that time frame? Well, our futurology. <laughs> I like that so many people today, they present themselves as futurists. Yeah. Now. <laughs> well, uh, I'm doing some futurology here. Um, the process I'm more engaged with, like from a decade and a half already, it's the, uh, the global environmental governance regime in the making, especially how is it being uh, but of course, it's, uh, the whole process is older than that, goes back to at least Stockholm in 1972. But since the, the Paris Agreement, uh, we have this new phase of the climate governance regime, and we are working towards this uh, global alignment of the economies, uh, towards this common horizon of decarbonization by mid-century or uh, translated into carbonese. Uh, net zero, yeah. uh, nature positive by 2050. Uh, and then currently the uh, nation states, the sovereigns, as they, <laughs> they are referred by the corporate world, are putting in place all this uh, legal framework to couple with the larger structure. Now, and then we see, especially after the COVID crisis, this um, in Europe, you had the... Um, uh, EU Green Deal, you had in mm -hmm. the US the Infrastructure Act, but you have uh, at regional level and at country level, and I, I can speak f uh, from Brazil, you know, the, the, the putting in place of this uh, ecological transition, green recovery, green deal, it varies in name, but in substance, uh, it's a pack, package of, of policies and measures uh, that we is creating the enabling environment for this uh, new phase of accumulation. I've been calling this the accumulation by decarbonization. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a 3D combo. You know, it puts together decarbonization as the um, uh, eschatological uh, horizon, because it's not the end of times as a Christian imaginary, it's the end of times as Silicon Valley uh, imaginary. Hmm. Digitalization, because then when you translate in the nitty-gritty or you degrain what digitalization means, what uh, climate action means, you actually, what you see is uh, the complex structures for 
a wild digitalization of every sector and uh, every part of our daily lives. And of course, the, the big leverage to finance this process is to further financialize uh, the assets that are not yet on the market. So to conquer, let's say, the big frontier of natural capital that has been this mm-hmm. uh, overarching discourse since at least the, the, the past global economical crisis of 2008. So we see this 3D uh, process in that is decarbonization, digitalization, and financialization shaping the history to come. You know? And of course, building our digital prison uh, branded as smart cities where we can be properly surveyed and controlled. Yeah, so let's talk about that dark side, because it's one of these things where it seems to me that the more we develop, the more ingenious our ways for oppressing one another become, as well as the the potential for harnessing new structures and tools for reducing issues of health or coming up with new technologies that can make it easier to, let's say, build schools and homes. So there's, there's always this double-edged sword. And when you're talking about smart cities and surveillance and essentially these kind of digital virtual prisons, how can we reclaim some sort of agency when we're almost kind of welcoming in this hyper-convenience? And it really is as simple as that, I think. It's a sense that we're told that we want greater convenience. And I certainly know that when I'm in a rush, that is true. And I do want more convenience and, you know, frictionless experience and the rest of it. But there are times when having that trade-off made visible would lead to making different decisions. So if I know, for instance, that by making all of my transactions on card, that there's going to be a history logged and attached to my name, my identity, about all of the purchases I'm making, and that in some future time, a government could say, okay, well, we're going to outlaw the purchase of X, Y, and Z, and they can look back into my history and say, okay, well, you bought, say it's meat, and we go into a vegan lockdown, let's say, of some sort. And they say, okay, well, we know from your history that you've bought this much meat in your past, and so you're going to be put on a red list, which I know might sound silly, but for the sake of argument, it's, it's entirely plausible. It's happened in various guises in the past, uh, people having to log their religion or other things. And so what can we do to get people to see what's happening and to make wiser choices? And of course, within that, I'm assuming that I come from a position where I don't want to be surveilled. I want data privacy. I want agency. I want consent. I want it to be informed. And I want those who are most vulnerable to be the most supported to understand what they're signing up to and have choice. So that's kind of like my my opinion. What do you think we can do about it? What do we need to learn and know (laughs) to do differently? Yeah, early in the morning over coffee. Um, (laughs) Well, first, I think we have to be clear. uh, What is the critical to act? Be informed to act. Um, uh, to be clear, where we are in standing in history. You know, for me, it's it's quite clear. You know, it's uh, a critical juncture. It's um, a historical and existential uh, crossroads, not for individuals or for nation nation states, but or for races or for whatever identity you choose or you shop around. It's a crossroad for humanity as we are going to define humanity and what we are accepting, you know, because the, 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 what is being sold to us, the, the ideology, this whole transhumanist uh, dream, you know, of immortality, which is also um, pretty clearly religious, you no, know? it's eternal life, it's eternal youth, 
um, it's extending life years, is uh, uploading your mind to the cloud. It's um, this uh, eternal existence through holographic mode. Uh, you know, you know, you have the the the, the portfolio. It's 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 pretty clear around, and Netflix keeps in fiction. You know, reproducing it uh, to. Mm to kind of install it in, in our psyche, collective psyche. Um, but uh, as you said, the, the, this hyper-convenience, it's uh, the trade-off, it's autonomy. You know, we are becoming automated uh, subjects. We are not um, uh, uh, forgetting how to exercise because it's, uh, it's a habit, <laughs> after all, you know, how you think every day, how you exert critical thinking because nobody's going to assert by you and uh, I just want to get a sidetrack here you know because I'm not mm. in social media at all you know I'm a virgin of social media but I've been studying um, those uh, places where people consider you know critical people consider oh no let's uh, go there because there is where the people that are not being uh, indoctrinated by tiktok uh, marionette dancing are you know let's say substack so substack is where you know the flock uh, the thinking flock uh, thinks you know there we meet you know our peers and actually you know the the, the visits i've done to read recommended substacks and the comment sections you know uh, it's uh, very smart people discussing it's a lot of um, uh, very uh, intelligent remarks very people that are aware of history and bring cultural you know it's an illustrated space but it's still it is uh, it's a sandbox mm. and in my perception there is a co it's a cognitive domain management you know it's like I was an ex in an experiment. <laughs> where you are being provoked and then you react and then other people react and then you get locked in that. And I am sure that the interface of Substack, because I believe in evil, you know, it's a big A, it's feeding AI, you know. AI, it's learning how uh, intelligent, critical people react and how you produce like, like this common sense because it's supposed to be the agora, you know, the public space. And I think we are helping to, uh, as in other spaces, to refine this AI that is going to, to rule us. Hang on, hang on. It's going to rule us. That sounds absolutely terrifying. What, what do you mean by this? Well, I, I, maybe I grew up reading uh, too much uh, among a lot of good literature, but also uh, sci-fi and science fiction mm -hmm. from U.S., which is, uh, um, uh, which, uh, I mean, it, it's on the basis of the key movies that also, you know, uh, have moved forward those ideas, but um, uh, sci-fi from other traditions. And um, I think there was a vision, you know, and this vision has, it was never uh, uh, this, this tech, the cybernetic uh, vision. Uh, it has, from the beginning, it's a dark thing, you know. I I don't know. I remember reading the the cybernetic, the cyberspace manifesto. I think it's from '98, if I'm not mistaken. But this this dark future for me, it has lead lights on it. <laughs> Let's put it this way, you know. I'm very sensible to the electromagnetic um, um, spectrum, and I've been fighting this uh, forced uh, change of light bulbs. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yes. Uh, I hate the modern lights. So I remember when they outlaw, because this was just, this is, by the way, it's a good example 
of those draconian measures that the nation states can take in the name of climate. Yes. When they decided that the biggest crime in 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 the world against uh, uh, climate change was the current light bulbs, you know, so it was a progressive, it was a one step forward, but they actually outlaw mm-hmm. and it was, you know, you couldn't buy even if you wanted, you know, I want to pay a more expense. No, you can't because they don't exist. It's it's impossible to, to produce them. And then, of course, they sold us the entire lead uh, novelty that has mercury that comes from China, that actually if you buy those uh, light bulbs uh, in bulk, like in public policy, and you offer to the people that, uh, poor people that cannot buy their very uh, light bulbs, uh, the government or the corporation doing this can earn carbon credits because it's wow. turning into more efficient. You know, Mexico did that, did that in a big uh, move. And actually, it was very interesting because historically, it was the first issuance of sovereign carbon credits, you know, out of a big public policy. Mm. So, but again, back to, to the lighting. So I was so um, like nervous with this idea of living under the lead spectrum that I went up and I bought, I have still, you know, it was like almost 10 years ago. I have, I don't know, 400 <laughs> of those lamps because I think, I, I don't know, maybe when I'm old, I want to have my, you know, shade lamp with this nice warm thing. And I feel um, very bad when I walk in in an environment or like, let's say, when I'm walking um, by the beach here in Rio, in Copacabana or in Ipanema, and you look up and you see at night what are the apartments that have the old lights, which is none. Uh, the vast majority that is buying the, the, the lead white ones and the ones that can pay a little bit more to have some like lightning design or have some light that is more cozy and actually you are less stressed underneath. So I don't know. I think this is part as we started this conversation talking about the psychosphere. I think that the light, this, the control of the spectrum of light uh, has a lot to do. It's crucial to control psyche and to control the psych sphere. You know, so we are this digital world. It's if if you remember in the movies, it's always fluorescent light. No. Yeah, it's grim. I mean, it's funny. I was just thinking. So as you're talking, because it's true. I remember when we first got LED lights, or, or the the uh, equivalent for me is sitting under neon strip mm-hmm. lights. I remember in the house where my my mum grew up, which was in our family for many years up in North London. In the kitchen, there was this big strip light, and it would make this buzzing sound. Yeah. Um, and I'm very sensitive to sound. <laughs> Like as a musician, I can't tune out sound if there's something, you know, I get woken up at any time of the night when there's a noise. And it was always this kind of low level hum. And it's true that our environment, whether it's sound, whether it's light or Mm. scent or whatever, does exert um, an ambient, in some cases, ever present impact on our bodies. And it can get us into quite a sort of wired state. But the other thing that I was thinking of when you were talking about this was um, Visions of the Future, sci-fi, one of my favourite, favourite shows of all time. And it's the only one where I can sit still by myself and not get up every five minutes because I'm quite restless, is Star Trek. All of the Star Treks. Mm. I love Star Trek. And one of the things in the more recent, um, the most recent season is that the ship that they're on develops its own sentience, which I love. And, And But what's really curious is this question comes up, it's like, what do you do when an AI gains sentience and then you're kind of operating it as a tool, but it's also then able to self-direct and has a sense of responsibility for those 
that are in its bowels, essentially. And it's just such an interesting treatment of this. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if there's something there you mentioned about the kind of the imaginary that we have, if there's a space for imagining a more pro the flourishing of life AI that doesn't just feed off of the substacks and TikToks and Reddits of this world and create something which is that maybe augments the qualities that I would like to see more of in myself and in others. So things like compassion, patience, um, a willingness to entertain alternative points of view, you know, you know, these sorts of things. Or is it just, or do you really just see the dark path and you're like, right, well, this, this is a nice idea, Natalie, but really, <laughs> we're fucked. <laughs> we're going towards a cliff edge, which is just going to be LED and fluorescent and full of hyper-convenience. So, and no people. <laughs> Oh, I know just people. the chosen ones, the, <laughs> just the ones who can pay. Well, I'm very skeptical, and I'm, I'm, uh, I, I don't think we can, um, uh, because I mean, this is, it's, it's kind of uh, anachronic, you know. But believe that, you know, you, you have to stop AI. You no, know, it's who said? I mean, then we have to go back to this uh, forgotten discussion about the, the history of science, the philosophy of science. How uh, we are not talking about science as, let's say, the Greek understood it, but we are in a techno-science, we are towards this technotronics society. You know, this discussion uh, from the, the uh, past, past uh, mid-century uh, during uh, the Cold War and, and the coming age, and um, I mean, it's, there's a history in this, in this conversation, but specifically, you know, in terms of the epistemics of what we are uh, walking around, it's the, the big debate about Teleology, you know, so uh, the telos, you know, the end goal of this. So actually we have with the whole cybernetic and system thinking, um, we have unleashed in the world this uh, vast machine. You know, there's a very good book um, uh, from this guy from MIT about the, the, the radar surveillance and, you know, the, 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 the big world wars. Uh, surveillance machine and war machine and mili militarization of life. Uh, but how does uh, the end goal of the vast machine, uh, it's not something that it's giving. Uh, it, it keeps uh, reframing itself. It's, it's progress. Actually, it's forward perpetual movement. And this perpetual movement that to generate itself, it needs to exclude uh, everything that uh, contradict this. So um, once we step into the cyber mode of thinking, I mean, I'm from philosophy, you know, so what is dialectical? Dialectical thinking cannot, you can't merge with the cyber vision of the world because we are uh, discussing how to create feedback loop uh, systems, uh, first order cybernetics, second order cybernetics, but we are excluding the possibility of what is most human of all, which is to live in contradiction, which is to give the big jump of fate of our intuition, our connect, our imagination, uh, the, the very creative potential. Something that, although the whole sentience discourse are regarding AI, uh, it, uh, it's not. I mean, AI has not truly step into the, and I think it will never. Will, what is the creative act mm. that is human per se? Because if you look at, oh, no, they say, no, AI is creating art, you know, those very creepy imagery that mm. comes out of AI or like, a, I don't know, a movie script or uh, a political discourse uh, to some head of state just to read out of. But um, 
just to to land on on your question about uh, our imaginary and how you know this all plays around um, people talk a lot especially from the north it's super trend oh let's decolonize blah 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 decolonize blah 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 uh, and uh, there is nothing more in dissonance of what is going on right now with this emphasis this guilty you know uh, virtue signaling thing about uh, uh, you know colon call oh everybody's oh anti-racist colonize uh, how do you say it's stop stop uh, stop prison defund the police when we are all oh an anthropocene and then if you look at reality we are it's not anthropocene by any means we're walking toward transhumanist future you can actually abolish the police because you have a police state and you have surveillance in everyday life. So, you know, the semiotics of things, it's, it's giving, you know, again, misleading signals. And we are being colonized um, every day, every second in our mental infrastructure. So you actually can uh, enact a decolonial narrative or discourse but you don't look at the daily basis on how the colonization is being currently built and how you say in Latin America, not say not discuss post-colonial or decolonial, but the coloniality, which is an adverb, which is a way of being, of how we are being inserted, and I can speak from someone down here in Brazil, in this global order. So if we don't bow to the green reset or to the green deal in uh, Europe, for instance, there is no future for anything that our new elected uh, uh, so-called progressive uh, government of Lula uh, can do in terms of changing the direction of the country. Because, you know, we are in a globalized world, we depend on trade regimes and trade rules, and trade rules have coupled with the climate and decarbonization agenda. So whatever we are fighting 20 years ago uh, against the WTO and against the globalization uh, by corporate globalization, this is all forgotten. The new generation now, it's the climate emergency, uh, you know, uh, the future that is the last generation. I just read that is this new movement in Germany, Extinction Rebellion, all those very um, branding uh, names to sell uh, this uh, thing that Margaret Thatcher was saying, there is no alternative. No, There is so much to unpack on what you just said. Um, there's so much to unpack. I really, I really want to pull on the thread of coloniality and ways in which it sounds like countries who don't, quote unquote, fall in line with um, global, and it's not global, it's kind of these ideas, standards that have been set in place around how to do carbon credits, let's say, or how to engage in certain types of trade, all of that sort of stuff that most countries just do not have the choice. Yeah. So whether that's, you know, a government that says, well, actually, we want to do something different. Uh, and there are movements where, um, you know, localfutures.org that I know that you're connected yeah. with, where people are talking about going local, becoming more resilient through networked communities and cities and stuff. There are alternatives that happen, but on, on, a, on a geopolitical level, where there are countries that don't want to toe the line and do what, let's say, America and Europe are saying that they should do, there's very little in, in terms of um, options. And I wonder from that perspective, it's, it feels like, to me at least, it feels like some of these really important issues, whether it's issues of oppression through gender, through race, through um, 
wherever you might be in the world, age, ability, all the rest of it. It seems like all of the social channels create this these small fires everywhere that keep keep us kind of distracted and enraged mm-hmm. and inflamed, while the actual landscape of what is and what isn't possible is shifting beneath our feet, and we're so distracted and at each other's throats that the deep thinking and connecting and relating that needs to happen in order to figure out what what on earth is going on is just not given air and space to, to happen. Does that make sense? I don't know if I'm being very clear in my yeah, no, question. I, I understand. I And I agree. I think, okay. you know, we are being steered uh, towards a future that some people have very clear what they want. Uh, and I think the majority of, of us are not going to be part of this, this future, or at least we're going to be the last generation. And uh, this um, collective in a, uh, perception management or social engineering that is uh, moving forward. You know, it's embedded. It's now a value of the uh, technocratic elite and scientific elite. Uh, you mentioned earlier in our conversation about the, the vegan lockdown, this control uh, and standardization of diets. It's a good example. I think this would be another conversation, but this this whole protein shift, you know, first you create this big problem, which it is, you know, industrial farming, no question about it. And then you you insert that as a prescriptive thing in, in global climate policy. Of course, disregarding, you know, the social realities, the cultural realities, the uh, environment, the, the cultural traditions for food, I mean, and all the GMO takeover and, you know, agrochemicals, but okay, you just ignore that. And um, actually, you sell something that corporate, it's corporate control, it's, um, uh, it's proprietary, it's full of big tech, which is, okay, we can make uh, plant-based, you know, of course, GMO soy-based uh, alternatives, yeah. but you can uh, also cultivate in a lab, you can synthesize, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a par- paradigm shift. I like very much this image of one of those uh, magicians from the uh, alt protein landscape that say we have disrupted the cow. <laughs> so actually, the, the cow—it's cow. a problem. Yeah, yeah, I know. I love the way they speak because oh. it's so—it's so blunt, you know. Uh, so the cow is a problem because you know the cow is an animal and it's you know meat and blood and then it eats grass and then it burps and then you have methane. So all those problems. Uh, so let's disrupt and then people can keep eating their protein Duncan diet of, of um, I don't know, preferable, uh, it's, it's chicken breast, you know, but also to have those drinky, milky drinks. So you have this, you walk into a German supermarket. Uh, I was living in Germany for two years and it's appealing, you know, all the milk substitutes and milk from uh, oat and milk from soy and milk from, you know, all the plant-based milk. And you don't ask why are grown-up adults, you know, drinking milk? You know, there is a reason why our mothers <laughs> stop to produce milk at some point. I don't know, maybe eat cheese or curds or, I don't know, camel milk, white cow milk. <laughs> <laughs> if you are from Mongolia, it's super fine. To, or horse milk in the Xtan uh, area. But uh, then it's being sold to us that, you know, they have overcome a surpassed nature. So this, this bigger ideology of editing nature with synthetic biology, with this extreme genetic engineering of uh, synthesizing life, this is all being sold to us literally 
in nuggets, no, mm. in chicken nuggets or soy nuggets. So um, I forgot now that the track we're into this, this <laughs> the, the, we got into the, the diet thing. But uh, I think it was the behavior and uh, the smoke screen uh, that is being tr uh, thrown at us. Uh, and we are discussing and getting on each other's throat, as you said, about all those yes. dividing things. This is, again, it's a very classic uh, strategy of moving forward this technocratic and technotronic society, which is seismogenesis. No, you have to create the divide because you polarize it's it's to the interest of the system this ai system that we keep uh, polarizing and and taking the extremes further because then the synthesis you know every time the the very system uh, the social system seeks homeostasis seeks mm -hmm. equilibrium and seeks to to come to a middle point actually because we are so polarized we come, uh, we end up actually moving a step forward, sometimes jumps forward, you know, this goal that we are not made aware of in mm -hmm. advance. So uh, we are just acting, I mean, the politics in the classical sense, in the, in the Greek sense, is the, 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 the debate and the choice between means to an end goal that is common. But we don't have the end goal. The only end goal that the majority of people actually have learned to believe is decarbonization, whatever that is. Because what kind of society we are building currently, if you look at the social tensions and what is being called extreme right, we could also say that what is the extreme left is doing on, for its own sake. Actually, it's, it's, uh, it's impossible to come together at some point or to share mm -hmm. a perspective because uh, very fundamental things are at stake. But at the end of the day, I think we are all consciously or not uh, being uh, helping to push forward uh, this, this horizon that, as I said, is quite dystopic. So one of the things I think that comes out in, in the way that you're describing these things is also the fact that a lot of the quote-unquote solutions that are being offered at the moment, so for instance, carbon credits or plant-based, which is a lot of it's not plant-based, it's a kind of synthetic meats and substitutes like this, they seem to be, to my mind, very limited, unintegrated solutions that don't really solve much of anything. I'll ask you about this. You have this wonderful example of talking about carbon credits or carbon metrics as we talk about calories. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I think that really pinpoints some of the biggest issues we're facing in terms of having the mental frameworks and language to accurately understand, describe and find alternative, better solutions for the interlocking problems that we're facing at the moment. Okay. So let's start with the carbon metrics calories example, because I think that's it, it gives a really good insight into the issues that we're facing. So... As soon as I, I started to uh, follow uh, the climate negotiations, I, I of course, I, my uh, connection with the environmental movement comes from much earlier. And I was into the biodiversity, into the anti-GMO, uh, anti-globalization and anti-GMO uh, more than 20 years ago. Uh, but then when I stepped into the actual you know, concept of the, the climate debate, um, and uh, not to deny climate change, but to understand how uh, in an institutional framework uh, and in a legal framework it's being cemented. 
my first question as a philosopher uh, um, is uh, understand the epistemics of it, how you shape, what are the terms of the conversation, you know, um, what are the, the first principles. And you cannot, by any, by any rational mean, to sit and talk, uh, not, I'm not talking about doing your seed bank, you know, or reducing whatever, but uh, creating a governance regime uh, around something that imposes this n- never before uh, um, existed meta universality as it is the carbon the uh, the carbon regime. So I started to criticize what I call the carbon matrix, uh, doing a parallel with the creation of the metric system, because if we don't look back and understand and find patterns, you know, this is a very scientific methodology, find um, uh, patterns, find similar um, uh, moments in history where we can compare when humanity created something that today is so embedded that very few people ask themselves, when did the meter and the kilo started? You know, how, how trade was done before the meter and the kilo? How does standardizations of weights and measures to one universal equivalent, you know, and measure of value? This is very Marx, you know, <laughs> chapter one, <laughs> book one of the capital. Um, it becomes something that is out of the blue. So we forget to historicize and to understand how power become embedded in science or techno techno science, I would say. But um, of course, now, and if we didn't have the metric system and the tools, uh, uh, technological tools that were produced to engage, to interface with the metric system, as for instance, the Celsius scale and the thermometer, we could not have measured the global temperature uh, to a degree where we can be as uh, rational human beings discussing if it's, oh, it's two degrees average, global average, or it's 1.5. This is a big, I mean, it's, it's so fantastic to watch the people discussing about that because we are talking about the global average change regarding to something that supposedly was perfectly measured uh, uh, two centuries ago. You know, you know, we have all the ice cores with the perfect, you know, this is myth-making at, you know, the highest level. But uh, anyways, so uh, I, I started to, to, to use this term uh, that actually comes from now uh, infamous uh, social science professor from Portugal, Boaventura de Souza Santo, which is uh, uh, the epistemic uh, epistemologies of the South. No, so he has in this this whole thing that is within the colonial decolonial coloniality debate this term that I like it very much, which is epistemicide. Hmm. So uh, I made the parallel that what we are doing with this imposing of carbon metrics as like the imposition of the metric system, which has a history, by the way, the UK. Uh, in the U.S., the U.S. so far does not, <laughs> although 200 years have passed, uh, does not acknowledge. It still uses the imperial weights and measures. Uh, but so the, uh, what the carbon metrics is doing to us in this generation is actually um, producing this epistemicide, ecological epistemicide of all the mental infrastructures 
that indigenous, diverse, all over the world, that actually allowed different peoples and cultures to relate to nature in different ways. And of course, to perceive, because these people were not blind and were not, oh, we don't know what's going on, but to understand and describe the erosion of the ecological process and the degradation of the environment. But you have different ways of relating to one uh, phenomenon that does not rely on having this Windows uh, program downloaded in your mind. I mean, if you cannot speak, this is why I, I talk about Carbonese. Uh, it's not because you are not fluent in Carbonese and uh, you have not bought yet the, the smart devices to measure the invisible, invisible carbon everywhere that you are not entitled or allowed to speak and to describe the ecological crisis. But currently, mm-hmm. in, the, in the big monopoly, <laughs> eco-monopoly game we are playing, uh, if we, you don't speak Carbonese, you are not allowed to speak. You, it's like you are not a raci- rational person. So the big trick that the system is doing is like super bringing to the forefront indigenous people. Of course, they need to be dressed as indigenous and with feathers because also this is a super uh, colonial way of portraying. You know, you have mm-hmm. to, to be in the physique du whole, uh, no, and 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 to and to look like what is expected. But then when you speak. What you are speaking of, and uh, and this is something hard to say, but something I have witnessed firsthand in 15 years within the UN C, is that you have indigenous faces speaking the super high green neoliberal narrative of the carbon metrics. But of course, this would be uh, not well received if it was this old guy in a tie, you know, this older middle-aged white man. But then you need younger voices that actually are screaming hysterically, you know, what what is the the path of corporations. Hmm. This is also why, for me, it's still shocking to see how easily uh, newer generations, younger generations, although very radical in their narratives, are very comfortable to sit with corporate actors and to just bash away nation states and sovereigns in the name of this common good that supposedly, you know, global compact corporations are much more willing to move forward. And and you see Coca-Cola or Unilever or even Shell, which it's net zero future, as a partner, as an ally, mm-hmm. as a, a friend, you know, because they are going to push forward the transition towards out, out of fossil fuel. So I don't know if I made a big, a very big round around, but my point with them, just to, to sum it up, with the carbon metrics is that once seen, it cannot be unseen. Mm-hmm. Taking an example of the metric system, this is how the nutrition debate uh, has been hijacked by the calories. You know? Once you are literate in the calories, uh, we can make sense of our diets, actually use calories and the minimum calories as something standard to negotiate at FAO uh, diets, you know, of course you have nuances, but at the end of the day, what is objective? What can be metrified? What can be counted? It's the calorie content. And of course, now it's the protein intake it's getting in because we have this, this frontier of uh, 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 corporate conquer, conquest, which is disrupting the cow and other animals, of course. But um, uh, stepping in, in, in the diet uh, analogy, uh, nobody disputes today that you can eat 2,000 calories a day, uh, but th- this can be 
empty, 2,000 empty calories a day. But for some standards, you are still nourished. I mean, you are not uh, in a hunger state. So if you're fighting hunger, the point is, okay, whatever you need to give the calories to the body. And we know, uh, I think it's more and more common sense today that we can make the human metabolism to function either on a carb-based diet, and then you are like burning carbs, or uh, you can shift to this um, uh, low-carb or protein or even cetogenic, ceto, ceto diet, no? And uh, the mode of functioning of your metabolism changes, but of course, you're still alive. So it's different metabolic paths. And, and this is quite interesting to make this comparison of how the ecological Marxism today is so into this metabolic disrupture and the metabolism between um, uh, humans and nature and post-industrial society. I mean, it's very interesting food for thought. But um, I would insist that once we, are, we have the next generation that is completely digital native and uh, has born in a world bound by carbon metrics, uh, it's going to be impossible for them to uh, take this frame because it's a built-in, something that comes with your hardware, more or less, to see a different path to, to fight uh, you know, for a more ecological just future because it becomes as second nature, it becomes as part of your mental infrastructure to think and discuss and, and turn into rational only the things that fit into the carbon metrics. Okay, so there's there's clearly some mapping out of the the frames that we're going to be operating in that are more likely to come into play for generations being born into it. So it won't be a visible thing because you're just born into it. It's just this is the yeah. way life is. This is the way the world works. This is how we've got to do things. And it won't even be a conscious acknowledgement. It'll just be how things are. But I think the other thing that we've mentioned that we previously touched upon in the past, which to me really directly connects with this, because when I think about things of, you know, unlearning certain things or being challenged to question some of my assumptions that I'm not even aware that I hold, which can be quite uncomfortable and always wildly fascinating to encounter things that we didn't realise we were holding, is to create spaces and experiences that connect us in a more liminal way, perhaps in an altered state or perhaps in a more embodied, maybe kind of mystical space, I guess, to give us a sense that not everything that we experience is definable, visible, predictable, uh, knowable, all of these things. And so this is something that I raised to you in a previous conversation, because this is naturally where I tend to go. You know, I've got my heart and there's the music and I'm interested in psychedelics and things. And you made such an interesting point that really blew my mind, um, which is around the role of psychedelics in altered states and how they might play into this more technocratic vision of a future. Can you speak to that? Because I really want to include that in our conversation before we before we close. It's just wild. Yeah, I no, I Natalie, I was very sorry to like <laughs> present a very honest view, but um okay. I don't know. I've again, you know, going to literature, I've read Adox Huxley, uh, Brave New World, and then we have Soma. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think with all due respect to, to, to the, all the traditions that worldwide have used, you know, the access to other realms uh, through means of uh, medicine and what comes out, out of nature. Currently, and looking with some, like, to see how a new commodity is being born, you know, um, 
I believe the big hype around psychedelics, especially you have like the Michael Pollan book some years ago, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the New York uh, bestseller list and, you know, all the trendy stuff where you can pay to have an ayahuasca experience in, in Amsterdam with your personal shaman <laughs> by 5,000 euros. And then you have like a guided, exp- you know, all those and the retreats, you know, you do yoga retreats and then you combine with ayahuasca thing. For me, you know, honestly, I think it's much more on the trend. And if you look at the trends, you know, trends like in the Silicon Valley, you have the Friday micro dosing day, at least before the pandemics, you know, it's, it's too much of an accelerated technological and social change for our biologically bounded still bodies and brains to accept or to process. So to the neuroplasticity, uh, to accommodate the, the, the dramatic changes, you know, and the, the acceleration of time that we are currently experiencing, we'll need to have people, you know, uh, in this numb state. Uh, and I think my guess is that it's, um, you are mainstreaming this kind of, you know, you have to open up your mind and see invisible because we are coming with the metaverse. Mm-hmm. We are sending kids, we are sending little children to use those glasses that I find horribly. Like the VR goggles. Yeah, the VR Google things. And we are uh, selling uh, extended reality, enhanced reality, augmented reality, this Pokemon uh, journey as the existential journey for the masses because they are not going to be allowed to come out of their ghetto and our our, their uh, tokenized uh, basic income schemes that, you know, in this this topic future with no work, with no labor, with just AIs. Of course, some will still doing the heavy work for a while, but um, you have a bigger vision of society, the dismantling of families, this only child thing. Uh, you know, it's 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 too much for us to accept. Like for instance, when I realized that you know what I was sensing, you know that this trend because I have a lot of friends that you know are too into this. Um, this ayahuasca thing, especially because it comes from Brazil, from the Amazon mm. and all that. Uh, but I was actually in this um, walking in this Alexa, I think is the name, this um, uh, old shopping mall in, in, in Berlin. Uh, and then I saw in, you know, in the pathway where they have those little stalls where they sell things. It, it's a, like, was a beautiful water bottle uh, mm-hmm. with this, of course, wood uh, tap. And then you could buy different flavors just because people don't like to drink water. <laughs> so you have to flavor it, you know, watermelon, whatever, you know, and people. And then it had, I, I said, oh, my God, how we can be selling those things and super expensive. But it's like natural flavors, no chemicals, no conservatives, no blah, 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 no color. And then you, I was reading the fine print and each flavor had one emotion associated to that. And then I said, come on now, this is, no, you need to be suspicious because then you say, oh, if you're feeling sad, you take that. If you're feeling too happy that, if you're feeling, you know, and then you, you just are, you are packaging like the, 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 the branding of things. Mm. It's something that appears transparent because, you know, transparency is a big uh, value in this age of 
uh, blockchain uh, open air digital prison. You know, we have everybody needs to be transparent, as you said about the the government tra uh, tracing uh, your spending on your credit card and mm -hmm. every move with Oyster card in the metro where you go, where you come back. Uh, but then the transparency thing with carrying all the time, you know, the transitional object, you know, your little water bottle, it, it's it's so infantile, it's so oral phase, not overcome, <laughs> you know. And then the system is already, you know, selling colors associated with emotions. And then I realized that they have those little packets because something that I never would buy. In uh, the cashier at the supermarket, at like Edeka supermarket, I'm, I'm quoting German supermarkets because where I saw the Rewe supermarket, and you can buy the little thing and just power it into the water. And then uh, you believe you're accessing some flavor associated with the emotion. I can see in a few years you have you you ha you having you selling uh, some kind of synthetic mind-altering substance at mm. the supermarket, at the cashier, you know, in like micro-dosing thing for the generation just to keep themselves hydrated, you know, and uh, going through this big tectonic, you know, existential shift into the new age without actually realizing it. Of course, we are not talking about the opioid, opioid crisis and the the old synthetic drugs addiction and the zombie like thing. You know, this is this is the extreme. I'm talking what the housewife that doesn't exist anymore, but you know what you can you can buy over the counter, you know, just to make your mind go through, you know, this without much pain. And and maybe you can choose in the future just to live in a numb state, being monitored with your little smartwatch that we can actually capture your heartbeat, how many steps you made, you know, what, uh, how many hours are you sleeping, how deep are you sleeping, all those oh, vital signs yeah. that um, I guess will feed this, uh, this global biophysical computer machine AI that will rule us. And I'm it glad that we're having this conversation. <laughs> because no, because I, I, I mean, and we're laughing around because if we don't face this as the, the political horizon towards which or against which you know, we have to organize ourselves and to have our thinking clear, we will spend the next five, ten years, I don't know, you know, just disputing about these stupid little things as in the Substack comment sessions, while, you know, the, the entire infrastructure, the, the physical infrastructure, the uh, cyber uh, um, infrastructure, but above all, the legal infrastructure where you can use police force actually to implement and tax force, taxation uh, procedures to implement this world that we are birthing, you know, mm -hmm. involuntarily, you know, it's going to, to come out, out of the womb. <laughs> Oh, okay. So usually at this point in the conversation, because you've only got a few minutes left, I ask how you orient yourself towards life and hope and um, beauty on difficult days. <laughs> but I'm wondering if maybe a better question that may well be connected to this is, given that you that you see all of these potential challenges converging with this horizon that's approaching and Part of the point of us having this conversation is to name what you see as, as the, the key challenges so we can make different choices, more informed choices. What do you do to move us and move yourself towards a future that is not the dystopia that you've described? 
Uh, and then also I kind of, you know, does that give you a sense of hope? What can we do differently? Mm, well, I think it's very hard. It's a, an existential daily choice that you have to make to affirm being human with all the the contradictions and the idiosyncrasies, but also with all the beauty of being human. It's hard not to fall and to buy in, uh, in the new desires uh, that are being sold to us as to have this eternal youth body and the, the perfection, the constant, you know, fabricated um, uh, reality in all its senses. It's, uh, it goes from, you know, fake lashes and fake hair extensions, fake nails, because this is all addictions to our body, you know. So how can you actually feel how you, I, I keep thinking, how you prepare your own food and peel like, you know, with those nails, you know, just one <laughs> visible example. Yeah, but I mean, it sounds silly, but it starts with the very, you know, small little things. Mm. I think in a more um, uh, vertebral spine of uh, how to be human, for me, it all starts with the food you eat because we are spirit embodied in matter, you know, and how we take care of the matter, our living vehicle is our only body. And so uh, it's almost for me like a, a religious practice. Mm. I know it's hard for many people. I know it. I understand all the complexities of where you live, the size of your family, and you know, uh, the, especially for working class people, they have to commute um, and are not, you know, privileged to have somehow privileged to have a home office, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But to make this effort, you know, to fight the convenience because the convenience is the prison convenience the um, prison max, the prison max of the Uber Eats and all the, and the likes, and to connect with your food and to source it locally and to actually connect with the, uh, you know, the legume, you know, whatever, you know, to touch. It's, it's an experience to touch the grains, to touch the fruits, to peel, because, um, you know, you are understanding where the energy, because you are phasing out the combustion engine, as they say it in the climate talks, and going towards the electrification of everything, because this electrification of everything, it allow, you know, the smart grid everywhere in the, in the internet of bodies, internet of things. So um, we have to find the same token. We have to affirm energy, but a different energy, an energy that is rooted in the cycles of nature, that is rooted in biology, that is rooted in earth. And so mm -hmm. what comes first from the earth is our food. And then once we are well-fed and connected uh, with the food that grows around us, that the food that is restoring where we live, uh, our second skin, I think it's our home. You know, where are we living? What are we accepting to uh, to share our daily lives with? You know, I keep um, horrified with how many junk from China people keep buying to put in their homes, and they are touching um, synthetic stuff all the time. So if you do not have contact with uh, uh, natural fibers, natural wood, I mean, if you are just touching plastic and and I don't know polyester and recycle mm. things every day your you know from your very senses your smell your sight your your tactile you are disconnecting from nature we are i mean the the the, the, the move is moving towards a carbon based life because everything that is alive contains carbon actually you measure the decay of carbon to assert you know history there is the carbon 14 uh, test by the way to to do this 
but we are moving from carbon to the silicon-based life. And uh, uh, I, I think a way to resist is uh, it's a, a, a true um, affirming of nature, our human nature, but together with what is uh, truly nature, not the synthetic biology modified engineered nature, but the nature that pertains to us around us. So also, this is why my criticism of universalizing ayahuasca, because ayahuasca grows, as to my knowledge, you know, the Amazon region, the pan-Amazon region, which encompasses nine countries. So you don't export a religion that also relies on one uh, biodiversity um, staple thing that only mm-hmm. grows in one place on Earth. You know, go find your own mushrooms in the Siberian forest. Yeah. I don't know in Eastern Europe or see the Mexican tradition. You know, I'm sure in India and China they have tons of access to this uh, otherworldly realms through their own biodiversity and not. I mean, I, I could foresee a synthetic farm, you know, monoculturing. Oh. I, was, I don't know. No, no, this is not what we want. No. I love that it's something that is so practical that connects into our everyday way of living. And it's something which many of us have some access to, I think, and can make different choices on. Certainly where I live, I'm really lucky that um, in Catalonia, a lot of the food that gets brought into the shops are really local. There's so many cooperative shops in, in my particular barrio. It does depend, you know, where you are in the city, there's some that are a bit further away. But I love that it's such a sensual thing to do as well. It's it's, yeah. it's something that you do with your hands that you can take pleasure in. That um, no, so I love that answer. Yeah. So um, I mean, there's so much more that I want to ask you, but we are at time. So I'd love to ask one last question, which is: if people want to find out more about you and your work and your thinking, where's the best place to find you, Camilla? Oh. Yeah, see, uh, I'm on this existential moment too. On I've been, you know, for, people are forcing me to have some kind of way to connect to social media. So I will be probably putting some something. Uh, I don't know when, but uh, soon. <laughs> and so I don't know. I'm gonna. I'm still in the name uh, of how it's going to be called to be found, but. Um, it, yeah, it's, it's a hard question. Okay, so we'll come back to that. Yeah, moment. yeah. Please, let's do it. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. If you've enjoyed the show, please do pop over to iTunes, Spotify, or wherever it is that you listen and leave a rating and a review. It really does mean the world to me to read your support, and it keeps me going to create more seasons, especially as this is a self-funded project into which we pour hours of work creating, recording, and producing each episode. To find out more about my work, you can sign up to my newsletter at natalinahai.com, explore additional books and resources at natalinahai.com forward slash resources, and you can reach me on Instagram and LinkedIn at natalinahai. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.